So it's all here. The story of our time with the bar call. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has provided a forum to explore not only the presidency of Lyndon Johnson, but the American presidency in general. As we continue this podcast, we'll examine the lives of many of the 45 men who have held the presidency and the impact they've had on our nation and beyond. We'll talk with some of the country's best historians who will look past the legends and shed revealing light on presidential lives and legacies with the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. And I'm Mark Lawrence. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm joined by John A. Farrell for a conversation about America's 37th president, Richard Nixon. And we could hardly do better on this subject. John is author of Richard Nixon, The Life, which won the Pen America Award for Biography and the New York Historical Society's Prize for American History. The book was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. John worked for many years as a journalist for major American dailies and covered the White House for the Boston Globe. His books include biographies not just of President Nixon, but also of the famed lawyer Clarence Darrow and House Speaker Tip O'Neill. John, thank you so much for being here. Very glad to be here, Mark. Um, I, uh, I I find a way to come to the Lyndon Johnson Library when I pick a topic uh, for my next book to make sure that it takes me through Austin. Uh, very honored um, that you're having me on this, uh, especially as the uh, the, the initial uh, subject. Well, it would be great to see you here in Austin and um, yeah. see you back in our reading room. Let's talk about your choice of this biographical subject. You have, as Phil mentioned a moment or two ago, written other biographies. You know better than nearly anyone how much effort and time goes into studying the person to whom you dedicate yourself. Why Richard Nixon? Well, he's endlessly fascinating. Um, he's almost a Shakespearean character in the wide range of his talents uh, and his flaws. Um, personally, um, he was one of three incredibly complex presidents, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and Richard Nixon, uh, who defined my teenage years and, and uh, college years, um, all of whom his presidency ended in uh, one form of tragedy or another. And so those were very gripping times. And to be able to revisit them and to have someone like uh, Richard Nixon as your subject is a uh, pretty much a biographer's uh, dream. Now, how does your take on Richard Nixon differ from those other biographers who've covered his life and times previously? What do you have to say that's new and, and different? I think there's always there are always cycles that happen uh, when great men uh, pass on. And so right after Nixon um, left office, there were um, a spate of biographies. Uh, Fawn Brody comes to mind uh, uh, and others that were very uh, critical of, of Nixon and tried to delve into his uh, psychohistory um, and portray him as a very twisted and warped um, individual. Uh, and then you get a sort of reaction and you have Tom Wicker and uh, Stephen Ambrose and others at the uh, end of the 20th century in the 1990s coming out with books and saying, you know, there was a, a good side to this fellow as well. And then 
uh, as the American archival system works, um, uh, folks like the good folks at the Lyndon Johnson Library go through the papers and clear them and they make them public. Um, in Nixon's case, um, uh, had uh, I think mine was the first biography we had full access to the White House tapes, um, uh, to Henry Kissinger's um, uh, taped telephone conversations, to um, White House Chief of Staff uh, Bob Haldeman's diary and um, uh, notes, um, all of which uh, enabled me to put together 10, 15 years into the new century, a complete, a more complete picture and also allowed me to, what I hoped, um, use this per perspective of time um, and to, to add what wisdom that gives us um, about Nixon. It's interesting how the pendulum seems to swing from a very harsh critique to a more favorable treatment or sometimes in the other direction. And I think that to my eye, at least, what really distinguishes your book is the, the fairness. Um, it comes through on almost every page or certainly within every chapter where you are certainly unsparing in your criticism at certain points, but also point out the, the, um, the more favorable dimensions of, uh, of, of Nixon's performance as a politician and his, his personal characteristics as well. Let me ask you, was that a difficult balance to strike? Did it sort of come naturally? Did you have to watch yourself as you, as you went about writing and researching the book? How did, it, how did, how did all that play out in practice? Uh, well, not to sound like a cranky old man, but uh, when I was a journalist back um, in the 1970s, um, breaking into the craft, uh, it was drummed into my head over and over again. Objectivity, fairness, um, the other side, make sure the other side gets a fair um, hearing um, by a series of, uh, of crusty, legendary city editors who, you know, would not allow sort of the, um, uh, opin the, the writer's opinion to get in uh, to the story. And uh, so I come from that background rather than an academic analytical background uh, which um, is a drawback sometimes because I'm more of a just the facts man type person rather than um, you know uh, a deep thinker from the Yale faculty who is um, you know pondering over Nixon's place in the psychohistory of, of of the United States of America. So that's part of it. But then this, there's also a set of professional standards for biographers, and a biographer, if, if, you know, if you don't have empathy then you have no reason to be writing uh, a book. You're writing the life of a human being. And even if it's someone who has played on a world scale um, like Nixon, he is still um, an individual and you have to come uh, to his life, try to understand why he did what he did rather than just do a facile, quick critique or dismissal um, uh, of, uh, of his life and his accomplishments. What did you find that you liked best about Richard Nixon? One of the first things that I noticed um, uh, when you're when you're when you're doing someone who has whose life overlaps yours, um, there are people who knew him, lots of them that I could talk to, and I probably did over a hundred interviews um, for the book, and those people, his old advisors, staffers, people who were young staff for him at the time. Um, had a quite a touching um, protectiveness um, about Nixon. They saw a side to him that the rest of us um, didn't. And they 
opened my eyes to a side of him that wasn't there. And then he had a, he had an, an awful, awful um, childhood and bore into his adult years um, a lot of scars from that. And getting back to the question of uh, empathy, um, you, you try to um, look at the person and say, okay, um, boy, he was really brilliant in politics. Uh, somebody, uh, John Ehrlichman, uh, compared him to a, a thoroughbred who knows how to do one thing, run the track fast. And when it came to the track of politics and international relations, Richard Nixon was, was, was that racehorse. But he had these flaws, which ended up being his tragic Shakespearean flaws. And um, to, to go back into his personal history and find out why they were there, why he was like that, um, why these young aides who revered him would talk, would get choked up talking about this, this, you know, this great character flaw he had, this insecurity uh, and this resentment that he carried and ultimately proved um, to be his doom um, was, uh, was quite um, moving. And so I was, you know, I was surprised at that. Um, I was wonderfully surprised at Pat Patricia Nixon, Patricia Ryan Nixon. Um, I, I immediately saw that this is a person who was not plastic pat the way that um, uh, she was dismissed when he was in office, uh, had a wonderful sense of humor. And one of the things I talked about archives being open, one of the things that came open was his love letters um, to Pat Ryan. And uh, he would write these amazingly clumsy poetic letters. You know, I'm, I'm sitting at my desk to this barrister here in Whittier, California, the rain has stopped. Um, the birds are singing on a rainbow is, you know, but all I'm thinking about is my great uh, Irish vagabond and wishing you were here. Um, you know, please, please, please find a place for me in your life. And she would write back and say, dear Dick, come on over on Wednesday and I'll burn a hamburger for you. Uh, and, and so you got this amazingly rich relationship uh, between the, the two of them. And again, that kind of stuff makes you realize that there's a person here. Um, and no matter how high and mighty this person was, um, yeah, this is an important part of, of, uh, of his story. And of course, um, this long marriage was a great, great chapter in his life. One of the things you helped me appreciate is how his, his clumsiness, his social awkwardness that you describe with great uh, vividness, it was actually quite endearing in many ways. Um, but let's talk about the, the other side of Richard Nixon, the one that is perhaps better known in the conventional ways in which we talk about this man. What was the ugliest dimension of Richard Nixon's leadership or his personality? Well, he came from the, it's a long answer. He came from the Southern California outback, uh, from an impoverished uh, family. Um, his father was an uneducated man and uh, a blowhard and something of a of a bully, um, and uh, but but incredibly hardworking and disciplined and worked his way up from farmhand to owning a uh, um, a grocery store and uh, put his uh, sons to work in the grocery store. And, but they still were not from the right side of the tracks in uh, Whittier, California, and so uh, he was always. Um, uh, you know, the classic kid who was uh, wearing hand-me-downs, or uh, who, when, you know, uh, was not in with the uh, with the in crowd, and um, and you begin to sense that there's this um, incredible performance that he's trying to put on to impress his dad, 
Um, and he's, he's, he loves his mother and his mother is the intellectual in the family. And so he's, he's hitting his books night after night after night. Um, and then getting up at three o'clock in the morning to drive to the vegetable market to get the vegetables for that day's, uh, sales at the, uh, at the supermarket. And, uh, and, and in this, you get this person who has an endearing side, has a noble idealistic side that he gets from his mom, but also gets from his dad, um, this cold mean evil was not um, something that you use as a biographer, but certainly was used to describe him in, in, in his time. Um, the thing that I found most loathsome was his coldness to uh, the people of Southeast Asia. He had personal political goals and he had a vision for what the post-Vietnam world would look like, both of which to him said that he had to um, draw the, the war out, bomb and bomb and bomb, the level of high explosives used on those poor, poor, poor countries in, um, in Southeast Asia was, um, it was an obscenity and it was an American obscenity, but, but he and Henry Kissinger were the ones who were, um, who were, who were putting that policy um, in motion. And I think it's, you know, if there is a God, that's, what, uh, that's something that they'll have to answer for. Let's come back to Vietnam in, in a few minutes, but for the moment, dwell on Richard Nixon's early life and his early political career. Um, for reasons that I think you're getting at in talking about Nixon's early life, he was, by all accounts, certainly by your account, a moody, sulky, socially awkward person. One might never have figured on a political career for this man. You, there's, a wonderful, there's a wonderful quote in your book where you say he's a, he was an introvert who wound up in an extrovert's profession. How do we account for the fact that Richard Nixon not only went into politics, but rose rapidly through the political world to the point of becoming yeah. president of the United States when he had these, these uh, personality traits that might have pointed in a very different direction? Uh, well, he was very uh, gifted when it came to um, drive and uh, brain power. And both of these um, gifts could carry him through an awful lot. To think that this uh, nobody uh, who came home from World War II and in 1945 gets a phone call from the conservative burgers of Southern California saying, we're looking for a, a bright young war hero to run for um, uh, uh, Congress um, would be able to go home, upset a five or six term liberal Democrat, take that seat in 1946, uh, become a U.S. senator and then vice president of the United States within the decade is just um, astonishing. And, it, and it, it shows his drive and it shows his smarts and it shows his capabilities and his persistence. But all those, all the uh, easygoing, uh, glad-handing uh, tricks of politics, those attributes, uh, they were all learned and they were practiced and they were performed uh, rather than coming naturally. Um, I'm working on a, a biography right now of Ted Kennedy. And to Ted Kennedy, all these things came um, naturally. He was like, he had the affability of an Irish cop, as, his, as, his, uh, as someone once said of him. But uh, um, but that Nixon didn't have that. And so he had, he had to construct it. And uh, for those who spent a lot of time with him, like President Eisenhower or um, some of the staffers at the Republican 
um, party who were invested in his career. Um, it was a puzzle, but it, and it, but it was also uh, an irritation. Um, and this continued all the way through his life. At the end of his life, after he'd left office and he was um, in exile in northern New Jersey, um, from time to time, he would have some of the national political reporters come in and he would uh, bring them into a big dining room and they would eat Chinese food, of course, um, to, to remind them of the opening to China. Uh, and then he would stand up and he would give this amazing tour de force talk on uh, politics and international relations. And he would talk about presidential politics and he'd talk about where Russia was or where the Soviet Union was and uh, where China was in the world right there and what was Europe's role and what was gonna happen to the United States. And the people around the table were just stunned because it looked like it was all uh, just right off uh, the top of his head. Uh, one of these um, reporters, writers had to uh, go to the bathroom. So he left the table and um, went down a hallway um, to the bathroom. And then on his way there on a sideboard was a yellow legal pad. And written on the yellow legal pad was the talk that he had just heard Nixon given. And Nixon had sat there, written it out, memorized it um, so that it appears spontaneous. Mm -hmm. And that was basically his um, uh, modus operandi as, as, a, uh, as a politician. Great preparation, um, uh, great uh, sense of uh, memory and um, uh, and just enough learned and acquired uh, tricks over the years to be able to carry it off. Going back, though, to Richard Nixon's uh, early political career, he seizes, of course, in that first election in 1946 on the anti-communist issue. He seems to see that American politics is changing, is shifting away from the New Deal, uh, new political levers are increasingly becoming available as the early glimmers of the Cold War start to become visible. And yet it seems to me, after having read your book, that it would be a stretch to describe Richard Nixon as an ideologue. What, what, what was the core, would you say, of Richard Nixon's ideology, if indeed that's even a, a, a term that's helpful to use in explaining his rise? Yeah, um, that's, that's a great question, because he really was not in any form um, an ideologue. The ideology was uh, winning, and uh, the guiding principle was uh, uh, pragmatism and uh, certain uh, ruthlessness, uh, rather than any sort of ideological commitment to a, to a program. His mother's family were, were Republican progressive who um, sort of idolized uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and uh, Woodrow Wilson. And his, his father was a uh, uh, sort of a sulky populist um, who at one point had a, um, a portrait of uh, William Jennings Bryan up in the family house. So you sort of see this uh, uh, politics of resentment and grievance coming from the father's side and uh, uh, the republicanism coming from the, uh, the mother's side. But uh, uh, there was some question when they asked him would he be willing to run for office? And it was like, well, by the way, are you are you indeed a Republican? Because he, you know, even though he had given some speeches for Republican candidates, uh, he was not a, a conservative uh, firebrand. And this uh, gives him great strengths. I mean, you know, his greatest accomplishment was looking at the international scene, knowing that um, America was going to play a different role in a in a in a in a post Vietnam landscape, and that the important thing in this new age that was coming. Um, this information age, which he saw, was that China had to be brought into the family of nations. And so it was that uh, he had the flexibility to drop 
his previously very harsh anti-communism, which had formed the core of his career, and go and uh, sit at the banquet hall um, with uh, Mao and uh, Zhao Enlai um, and create, you know, uh, tr- create today's world in, in many ways. So um, in, in, in no way was he an ide- ideologue. Um, he was an opportunist um, and uh, a pragmatist. Perhaps it's ironic then uh, that one of his, maybe his biggest single break in his whole political career, um, being chosen as the vice presidential candidate in 1952, um, was driven, I I suppose, by a sense on the part of Dwight Eisenhower that Richard Nixon could appeal to the right, right? He he had the anti-communist issue working for him and could hold down the right wing of the party. Um, is, is that a fair way to think about Eisenhower's calculations in 1952 and the reasons why Richard Nixon achieved at this remarkably young age this um, tremendous elevation to being no yeah. less than the vice presidential candidate? Yeah, well, you, we were in an era after World War II where uh, the McCarthy era and Nixon was a uh, harbinger of the Ma- McCarthy era, um, sort of a tutor to Joe McCarthy in many ways. Um, and somebody who had gotten elected to both the House and the Senate by running, portraying his opponents, his Democratic opponents, as um, um, as pinkos, as liberals, as um, uh, uh, communist uh, sympathizers, and uh, so he he recognized that this was a very potent theme um, in American politics, and he was willing to use it. Uh, Eisenhower certainly had just defeated uh, Robert Taft, who was the representative of the conservative small town Midwestern uh, party, whereas Eisenhower was seen as the, um, at the time he was the president of Columbia University and he was seen as the candidate of the Wall Street wing of the Republican party. And so Eisenhower needed somebody um, from the heartland. Eisenhower also um, liked the fact that he was a, uh, a member of the soldiers generation in, in World War II. And it's, a, it's an interesting twist to their relationship that Eisenhower saw him as what Nixon was, which was an ensign and a lieutenant, uh, you know, and saw him as vice president, Eisenhower, the liberator of Europe, saw him as, saw Nixon as vice president as staff. I mean, like a little young staff officer. Nixon saw himself as, you know, I want to learn from this great man. I want to sit at his side. I want to be treated like a father and a son. And he never got that relationship from Eisenhower, and that was um, an irritant to their relationship and and, and something that sort of uh, nagged at him. If I had an analytical insight in the book, it was how much of Richard Nixon acting as president was patterned on the eight years in which he had sat and watched Dwight Eisenhower, this superb general and president, move the levers of power and how Nixon tried under different circumstances, obviously, and with different issues, but tried very hard to, you know, if he had a crunch decision um, and it didn't involve Richard Nixon's political, direct political future, um, he would very often, uh, almost always go back to the Eisenhower model um, and try to implement, try to deal with things the way he saw um, how Eisenhower had. And one of the great illustrations of that was that when Eisenhower came into office, um, he came in with the promise, I will go to Korea. I will get a settlement in Korea. And part of the way that he got a settlement in Korea was um, threatening uh, the Soviet Union and the Chinese um, that the United States was not going to um, uh, stand for this and that we had the world's great nuclear arsenal at that at that time and we would not be afraid to use it. Um, and 
got the Chinese and the uh, Soviets to, to to back down, and at least there was a stalemate in, in Korea and a ceasefire. Well, Nixon coming into office tried to do that exact same thing, tried to end the Vietnam War quickly with negotiations and with the threat of great American power. But of course, by this time, um, the Soviet Union had an arsenal um, uh, uh, to rival ours and was not going to be um, intimidated and was very happy to leave uh, Richard Nixon and the United States stewing in this fix that it had gotten itself in Vietnam. And so that particular ploy did not work, but that's a great example of how he, he looked back to his his time with Eisenhower for instruction and for uh, examples of um, uh, of how a great man does make power work for him. Now, one of the things that could probably be said about any president in American history is that to some degree, there was a match between the individual and the moment, the individual and the deeper social currents of the time. And it seems to me that you do a wonderful job in the book of showing how Nixon's sense of himself as someone who had suffered unfairly at the hands of elites, who harbored a sense of grievance against the media, against uh, Democrats, of course, really synced up well with, with important social currents that played out across the 1960s as the New Deal coalition started to break down and um, people turned toward a message of law and order. Talk a little bit, if you would, about that that silent majority message. Where does that originate in Richard Nixon's career? And how did he play on that theme as he reappeared in, in prominent positions in American life um, as yeah. he uh, charted his, his second presidential run? Yeah, well, you're perfectly right, and it's a, it's a great observation in that um, he was good at it because it was him, um, uh, and so and and so he was good at the noble parts of his presidency because that was him as well. Uh, a little while ago, you said "and yet," and that really could be the subtitle for um, any book on on Richard Nixon, "and yet," because no matter what you say about him, good or bad, "and yet." There's a fascinating um, flip side. In Nixon's case, he had come up from the working class. He had been accepted at Ivy League schools and was not able to go because his parents couldn't afford to, to send him and to, to board him um, in either Cambridge or New Haven. And uh, he uh, had gone to Duke Law School on a scholarship, but had been turned down by the uh, fancy law firms uh, on Wall Street and went sort of skulking back to Southern California to get a job in uh, a small law firm in his old hometown. And so, and, and he had this father who had this sort of populist grievance that had driven into um, all his sons. And um, so uh, that was, was definitely there. It was also coming out, it wasn't just Nixon, it was coming out, if you read uh, Whitaker Chambers' book, um, A Witness, it was, you, you find, you know, the elites are laughing at us from their penthouses in you know, Manhattan, and uh, and we're the salt of the earth, we're the, we're, we're the real Americans. And then you had two things happen at once. Once you have the, the, the great golden economic era that, that followed World War II for the United States uh, begins to fragment. And there's pressure all of a sudden on American families. The, the union guy that could work in a factory for 40 hours, uh, go home, pick up the kids, put them in the trailer, or go out to the lake for the boat, 
uh, and uh, come home and watch uh, Ed Sullivan on Sunday and go back to work on on Monday. It was a it was it was more than just you know happy days and the Dick Van Dyke show. It was a true way of life for many Americans, and all of a sudden it was now uh, under pressure from international um, competition and the costs of of the Vietnam War. The war itself was a huge divider because there were so many people in the United States who had seen us fight a fight a good war in World War II and uh, saw the United States as in a, a noble effort in Vietnam to resist um, uh, communism, uh, were divided against others who saw in it as a uh, imperialistic uh, exercise uh, that was crushing the people that we were supposed to be liberating. And so you had great divisions there in, in, in the politics of patriotism. Um, and then you also had the 60s. You had a conservative older generation seeing their children turn on, tune in and drop out and go to Woodstock and Altamont and uh, wear their hair longs and wear greasy uh, blue jeans. And you had uh, women for the first time burning their bras and announcing that they were going to be uh, liberated and equal with men. And of course, the, the, you had the great, great driving um, divisions of, of race. You had um, Black Americans coming home from World War II, um, insisting on their rights, going into the streets, and at first being sympathetically met by a, a guilty um, white America when they saw those kids in uh, Birmingham being hit by fire hoses and bitten by police dogs and hit by uh, Southern sheriffs. Um, and uh, But then turning against Black America um, as you get the riots of the late, the urban riots of the late 60s and um, the civil rights movement turns to a more, to, to more questions about uh, economics and equality and um, results rather than just well, here's a here. Here are two bills that give you voting rights and equal rights. Um, they well, now we want to see some change in our lives, and so Black America becomes more insistent, and White America is told by people like um, George Wallace and and Richard Nixon that you know they want to leap ahead of you in line. Now they don't want to work for it like you and your parents did. They they want a, a handout, and these pointy-headed liberals in at, you know in the editorial boardrooms of the New York Times or um, out in uh, in Hollywood. Uh, want to give it to them. And Nixon very um, shrewdly uh, saw the political possibilities of working on that schism um, and really to, to a great extent gave us this um, awful, what I still think is an awful division in our, in, in our politics and our culture today. Let's go there for, for a moment before doubling back to the presidency itself. Um, the, na- the, the words Donald Trump don't show up in the book. Um, and yet it's very hard not to see, not to hear the echoes and see the connections to our own day. Should we understand Richard Nixon as a transitional figure in some ways who helps to usher in our current moment of politics? I'm not sure he was a transitional figure as much as he was a, uh, I mean, he was sort of John the Baptist to uh, Joe McCarthy. Nixon uh, made his name in the House of Representatives by um, uh, chasing Alger Hiss, a communist um, spy, and helping to fuel the notion that the liberal governments of Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman were riddled with with communists and they were stabbing us in the back. And that's the reason why all of a sudden our great victory in World War II did not result in peace around the world, but instead led to this new thing called a 
um, a Cold War and an arms race. Uh, and, the, and he was very, very uh, deft at that. And in fact, in, there are paragraphs that Joe McCarthy cribbed from Nixon's Alger Hiss speeches in Joe McCarthy's famous speech in West Virginia, where he says, I have in my pocket the, uh, the names of 45 or 55 or 300 communists who riddled the State Department. So, I mean, there's, there's, he's, he's more of a, an originator than a, um, a transitional um, uh, figure. There always was a, a right-wing strain to um, American politics. In the 1920s, uh, my friend Clarence Darrow went to um, Tennessee to, to fight the fundamentalists over whether or not um, we should teach science or religion in the public schools. Uh, coming out of World War II, you had the the birth of organizations like the John Birch Society um, in Southern California. So you can't just say, you know, Richard Nixon originated all this, but he was he was a shrewd enough politician. And in fact, in all fairness, and yet uh, there was no greater foe of the John Birch Society in California than Richard Nixon. So I mean, he, um, he, you know, he, in fairness to him, um, he did not carry it to the extent, I believe, uh, that we see it. Um, carried today on uh, some of the Fox News commentators and in the Republican Party and uh, in, the, in the Trump wing of the Republican Party. It's a uh, it's it's indicative of the fact that um, Dick Cheney came into the Ford Nixon you know White House. He was a, a the Cheney strand of uh, politics today is seen as uh, and the Romney um, strand is, is are, are seen as um, uh, out of step with the with the Trump wing of, uh, of the party, and yet they all both the Romneys and the, and the Cheneys would be quite at home um, with the, uh, the shinier side of uh, the Nixon uh, presidency. Let me pose to you yet another and yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so Nixon clearly rides a certain brand of politics to the presidency in 1968. And then he does things that, at least on a superficial level, are not at all consistent with that style of politics. In foreign policy, he opens China. He pursues arms control, very meaningfully, very meaningful arms control deals with the Soviet Union, detente, all of that. And in the domestic arena, as you point out in a wonderful chapter, he is remarkably, I think, what we would conventionally call liberal with respect to the environment, civil rights, any number of domestic issues, uh, something I think that often gets lost in the way we think about Richard Nixon. Um, should we just be comfortable with the fact that this was a complicated guy who could do multiple things at the same time? Or, or is there more to how we might think about squaring those contradictions in Richard Nixon's performance as president? Yeah. Well, you have to put any president in his in his time and, and rate him on his ability to read, read the currents of, of the, his or her time. Nixon saw that the environmental, he, he had a very gripping introduction to the presidency. Within two or three weeks, there was this huge oil spill in Santa Barbara, California, which came to uh, symbolize to many Americans, and especially to Californians like, and Californians like himself, the fact that uh, we have to do something about the environment. Now, it didn't hurt at all that Henry Jackson and uh, Edmund Muskie and others on the Democratic side of the aisle in the Senate were looking to challenge him in 1968 and would, would, would ride the environmental issue um, against him. And so he decided both for reasons, good reasons from his heart, and also to co-opt them being shrewd politically 
um, that he would embrace environmentalism. And so for a period of about two years, he was probably the most productive uh, environmental president uh, going back to Theodore Roosevelt. And, you know, he creates, he doesn't send a bill to Congress to, to establish an agency called the EPA. He creates it with a stroke of his pen. Um, and um, he uh, supports, co-ops the Democrats, supports them on things like uh, coastal zone planning, marine mammals, the Endangered Species Act. I mean, he's there. Clearly one of the most brilliant um, uh, environmental agendas uh, of any uh, president before um, or since. Then he sees that there are issues in healthcare, and he looks at Ted Kennedy, another potential uh, rival in 1968. And Nixon, the tapes are wonderful. Nixon says, you know, we got to do something. If we don't do something, they're going to force feed it to us, and it's going to be awful the way they do it. So let's, you know, let's redo it the right way. And uh, you see that with Social Security indexing, the fact that Social Security is indexed for inflation. You know, Richard Nixon, uh, the war on cancer and the growth of uh, NIH, which uh, the medical establishment that was able to give us these amazing vaccines in record time. You know, Richard Nixon, um, uh, working with a Democratic Congress, reading the, the leaves of his time. But, it, but in some cases, just totally surprising and baffling, baffling us. Uh, when it came to uh, the segregation of Southern schools, you had Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court saying, let's go ahead in the mid-1950s. No presidential administration, not Eisenhower, not Jack Kennedy, not Lyndon Johnson had the nerve or the guts to do it. Supreme Court finally says, now it's got to be done now. And Nixon says, okay, we're going to do it. And he puts together, he calls in George Schultz, um, and, and others, and he puts together this plan, and within his administration, more Black kids go into integrated classrooms in the South than under any president before um, or since. Uh, Nixon and Schultz come up with something called affirmative action. They initiate affirmative action into, um, into the American uh, political uh, stream. It was an idea that had per that kicked around at the bottom of the Johnson administration, but they were the ones who elevated it and, and brought it out. Um, and uh, and yet this is the same guy who in his uh, in Haldeman's notes and in some of the tapes, you can hear him you know, talking in the worst ways about um, in the crudest ways about um, using race as a uh, as a as a political tool. So, you know, a, a, an eternal fascination always that the two sides of him always at war is his saintly mother and um his uh um his crude dad and uh always surprising and unexpected in what what he'll do next to um but again always behind it all is is this um opportunism and pragmatism and you know, he, he was not except for international relations which consumed him um he was in many of these political things he was doing as a shrewd political reaction to whether it was the court of the Democrats who were pushing it onto his plate. And speaking of those other sides of his personality, we have to come to Watergate. Um, I've left a very small amount of time to deal with a very large <laughs> issue here, but let me pose to you what I think is the golden question, very simply at the heart of it. How does someone as shrewd, as experienced, as accomplished as Richard Nixon become involved with a cast of characters that you 
describe on one occasion as sycophants and klutzes, people who are really not very good at what they do, and lands Richard Nixon in a world of trouble. How does, how does he wind up um, with his presidency at the mercy of such a ridiculous plot? Yeah. Well, believe it or not, he starts, I think it's in the transition period. If not, it's very early in his presidency. <clears throat> he sends a memo to Haldeman, who's going to be his chief of staff, and says, Bob, there are going to be times when I order you to do things that you're going to immediately recognize um, are not in our best interest. And uh, I want you to come back to me in three or four days when I've cooled down and say, well, you know what you ordered us to do the other day? Well, we didn't do that. I mean, I want to know what happens to my orders so that, I, so that, the, so that the ones I really believe in get carried out. But if, you, if, if I'm spouting off and flying off the handle, you have the power um, to make sure um, that we, we stay in line. Um, so he recognized this impulse in himself that he, that he could get carried away. The dark side could come out and get him in trouble. Um, and for, um, several years, it, 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 you know, it worked. He, they, they stayed within, um, uh, the boundaries of things, but as they got closer towards the reelection campaign, he became more and more agitated and you actually, the dark side comes out and the tapes are crystal clear of him saying, Bob, I want more tailing. I want bugging and taping of the Democratic candidates. And everybody on the White House staff, despite his protestations, knows that the best way to appease the boss is to come up with some sort of dirty trick that'll make, you know, Nixon, the, the, the evil Richard Nixon, um, uh, chuckle in delight. Uh, and so they all begin to uh, go down that path. And Haldeman is supposed to be the one who governs everything and keeps it on track. And, 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 and simply, there was so much going on in the Nixon years, Vietnam, Kent State, opening to China, race, arms control with the Soviet Union, that Haldeman lost track of some of these bozos who went out and did things that they heard Nixon say he wanted done. But Cooler heads would have said, no, um, don't do it. There's a um, classical comparison uh, of King Henry of, of England, um, who was bedeviled by the Archbishop Thomas Beckett. And at one point, Henry rages to his court, won't somebody rid me of this meddlesome priest? And sure enough, some knights decide this is a great way to get the king's favor. And they go and they kill uh, Thomas Beckett and King Henry is crushed by the news because he didn't really mean it. Thomas Beckett had actually once been a friend of his and he knows that taking on the church and killing archbishops is not a good thing politically to, to do. And that was sort of what Watergate was. It was Richard Nixon giving way to the worst side of his character, ranting and, and raving and uh, a bunch of um, klutzes um, going out and doing um, really stupid things and getting caught at the peak same spring that he comes back from 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 China. Now you can't you can't just say okay, absolve Nixon of it because he created the atmosphere. And in fact, in '68 when he ran for office, Lyndon Johnson had a promising peace plan that um, he was dealing with the uh, Russians and the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese, and Richard Nixon uh, undermined it on purpose because he didn't want Johnson and Humphrey to have. A successful settling or cooling of the Vietnam crisis in the fall of 68, because 
him being the cool internationalist who's going to solve Vietnam for us was a great asset uh, for his campaign. And uh, so a, a peace deal was like the worst thing that could happen to him. And he worked actively um, uh, to undermine it. So um, uh, you, you can't say that, you know, history is unfair to him. He really did do devious bad stuff. Um, and um, I argue in the book that the, the undermining of Johnson's peace plan in 68 was worse than anything that, that Watergate had because it led to another, you know, 100,000 Vietnamese deaths and another 20,000 American deaths in, Viet, in Vietnam. So, I mean, there were consequences of his, of his actions. Watergate was, was the symptomatic scandal that caught him, but it was not um, an aberration. Well, John Farrell, for my part, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. And I can talk all night about this guy. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again, John. Thanks, Mark. My thanks to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and as always to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Lawrence. See you next time.